Those of you remaining, we're going to try to finish the book of Exodus this morning, chapters 35 to 40. So if you want to join me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be looking at Exodus 35 to 40. As you turn there, I just wanted to remind you of the, the leadership training class that we have for some men in our church on Saturday mornings, which has begun again. We're doing a, a module on counseling and discipleship, and we're training men so that they would be equipped for the work of ministry and discipling and counseling others here within this body or perhaps other places if the Lord would so move them to other places. And just ask that you would pray for that ministry of leadership training for future leaders at this church and for these men who seek to be equipped that they would be more fit and useful in the master's hands. Sometimes people ask me, you know, why, why do I read the word Yahweh in the Bible instead of Lord all caps? And you know, What Bible translation are you using? Uh, I'm using the, the Legacy Standard Bible, and one of the reasons is because the name Yahweh is in there as opposed to Lord all caps. And I know that's a curiosity for new people or even people who have been here around a long time. You know, why is he doing that? And you just haven't asked me personally for some reason, so I'm going to answer your question anyway in part in the introduction to this sermon. If you have other questions, uh, please feel free to ask me those sometimes. Imagine that the only Bible translations that you'd ever known in your life did not have the name of Jesus in the New Testament. Instead of the name Jesus, you just had capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And why is Lord in all caps there instead of Jesus? Well, you find out that there were some superstitious religious scribes who lived hundreds of years after Jesus and thought his name was too holy to pronounce it. It's so holy that to speak it would be to take it in vain. But you also learn that from that New Testament, the word that's translated as Lord in all caps is different than Lord with a little O-R and D. They're two different words with two different meanings. One of them is Jesus, which is the combination of the words Yahweh and saves. It's a name that means Yah saves or Yahweh saves. It comes from the Hebrew name Joshua or Yahshua, but it's pronounced Jesus in Greek and in English, Jesus. The difference between Jesus and Lord, all caps, is the difference between a personal name and a title. Now, the word Lord comes from a different Greek word, kurios, and this word is a title. It's just translated Lord or Master. It's used of one who is in a position of authority. It's not a personal name. It's kind of like Mr. Sir. It's a title in reference to a position that is held. Now, if this is all you had ever known in your Bible translations, it would feel a little bit strange to have the name of Jesus reintroduced to you in a Bible translation that refers to him as Jesus rather than the Lord. Strange as it might feel to start calling him Jesus rather than the Lord, what we want to know is how did God reveal himself? Did he merely reveal himself with 
the title LORD, all caps, to maintain a distance where we couldn't know him by name. We could only know him by the title Lord. Well, is that what God wanted, or did he want to reveal himself with a personal name to communicate a nearness to his people and having a personal relationship where you know his name and he knows yours? Now imagine that the only Bible translations you have known in your life didn't have the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, but instead it was replaced with the title, Lord, all caps. I know you don't have to imagine that. That's the reality of the thing. But why is Lord, all caps, there in your Old Testament instead of the name Yahweh? Because of some superstitious religious scribes who thought the name was too holy to pronounce They came to this conclusion from the text Leviticus 24, 10 through 11, where they misinterpret the text. I'll read it to you. It says, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. And the son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was... Shulamith and the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. You can read further on that in Leviticus 24, but what they concluded was what this guy did that ended up getting the death penalty was he spoke the name of Yahweh. But when you read the text, you don't hear that he spoke the name. You hear that what the issue was was that he was fighting with some guy. And so this issue of taking the Lord's name in vain isn't about whether you pronounce his name or not. But it's this concept of, that has to do with how you live because we were all made to bear the image or the name of God and we're not to bear it in vain in how we live. We're not to live contrary to his character. As it is, Lord and Lord are two different words. Lord with little O-R-N-D and Lord all caps comes from two different Hebrew words with two distinct meanings one being Adonai and the other Yahweh. Adonai is a title which can be translated Lord or Master. It's used of one who is in the position of authority. It's not a personal name. It's a title in reference to a position that is held. That's the equivalent of kurios in the Greek. Yahweh, the other word, is a personal name rather than a title. And it comes from the Hebrew word which means to be or to exist, which is why it's translated at times as I am or I will be. And tense isn't built into how Hebrew words are spelled. Like sometimes we add an ed at the end of a word to put something in past tense. Instead, tense is something that's determined by context rather than how a word is spelled so you could actually translate God's name Yahweh as the one who is and who was and who is to come which is exactly what the apostle John does in Revelation 1 8 but in the gospel of John we also have that name Yahweh but instead of it being pronounced Yahweh we have it translated as I am you might remember when the Jews asked Jesus how he could have seen Abraham when he wasn't even yet 50 years old. 
Well, Jesus said in John 8:58, he said, "Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." What he was doing there was speaking the divine name and saying that he is that. He is the great I am. And they had no trouble understanding that's exactly what he was pronouncing and claiming. Now, I know that it feels strange to read or hear the name Yahweh in the Old Testament rather than replacing it with the title Lord because that's been your tradition. And I lived through that as well. It was weird for me when it happened to me. (laughs) But perhaps it's less strange than you realize. It's a name which you actually regularly pronounce every time you say the name Jesus, which means Yah saves. Or every time that you sing Hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. Or when you read the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Strange as it might feel to start reading Yahweh, where the name of Yahweh actually is, rather than the title, the Lord. What we want to know is, how did God reveal himself? Did he merely reveal himself with the title, Lord, all caps, to maintain a distance where we couldn't know him by name or call him by name? Or did he reveal himself with a personal name to communicate nearness, a personal relationship. This is one of many reasons why we teach from the Legacy Standard Bible, from this pulpit, which if you have one, I recommend reading the foreword because it says all of this stuff in there. And whatever Bible translation you have, you should just read the the foreword. It'll be useful to you. Now, the Legacy Standard Bible, it reintroduces God's name as he revealed it, as God revealed it, And as it was spoken then, as it was written then, and as it was read by people like Abraham, Moses, David. So if you were to join in and reading it and pronouncing that way, you're in good company there. And one of the many amazing realities which this conveys is that God is a personal God who brings us near to know him by name. He doesn't keep us at a distance to only know him by name. A title. This is the reality in the Old Testament and him revealing himself as Yahweh and in the New Testament and revealing himself in Jesus. God wants us to know his name, which is the point of the book of Exodus. It's the revelation of God's name. You may recall back in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses being commissioned for making known God's name, he said, well, what do I say if people say, what is his name? Uh, What shall I say to them? And God said to him, eh Yahweh, eh Yahweh, which means I am who I am. So Yahweh had no problem pronouncing his name or telling Moses that's what his name was. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. What you see, the name's actually longer than Yahweh. It includes all of those other words in there as well. And God goes on to tell Moses here, he says, This is my name forever. And this is my memorial name from generation 
to generation. And this name has not simply to do with just the pronunciation of it. As you know, when we talk about somebody's name, we'll say somebody has a good name. We're talking about, you know, they have good character. They're reputable. Well, that sort of concept also comes along with God's name as well. As a, it's a revelation of his character. And you see this especially in Exodus 34 when Yahweh passed by in front of him. And it says he called out, he said, Yahweh, Yahweh, God. And he further explains his name by saying, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And this development of the revelation of God's name throughout the book of Exodus continues into chapters 35 through 40 with the building of the tabernacle which is actually stuff we've studied already and have read, which is why I think we can go through five chapters in this sermon. And when you think of the tabernacle, you have that rectangular tabernacle that's inside of a rectangular fence, and inside of that fence you have the, the altar and some of the things that the priest used, but then you had the camp of Israel that was outside of that you could perhaps think of this as kind of being like a vacation Bible school sort of skit where you're trying to teach kids through how some structures are laid out. You're trying to teach them about theology through these physical things. The tabernacle is like that. The, the tabernacle is like a gospel tract, but it's one that's constructed and built that's communicating certain truths. So the tabernacle, a word that means dwelling, is showing this picture of dwelling with a holy God. So you're learning God is holy and it's possible to dwell with him. Which, you know, when you see a gospel tract, you have that. You're doing, God is holy, man is sinful, and needs a God-man mediator who is Jesus. So repent and believe. That's exactly how the tabernacle worships. You have the tabernacle, God is holy, but then you have all the people are outside of the fence. Why are they outside of the fence? Man is sinful. But how can man come inside the fence and then go into being able to dwell with a holy God? Well, it's all that stuff that's right there in the middle that you have, you know, the, the altar and the laver. I have a picture in my notes right here. I know that's hard to see, but <laughs> you could just draw some little rectangles in your notes to remind you. But all that stuff in the middle is God's mediator. You know, how, what mediates between God and man so that there can be a reconciled relationship? Well, it's going to involve sacrifice, blood, atonement, being cleansed. And so that part of the gospel tract teaches those sort of concepts. Exodus captures the nature of the whole Old Testament and its intention which is to move people to Jesus Christ. It's teaching you, you need to be saved, but you can't do that yourself. And it's not through trying to keep some instructions that have been given to you. The instructions are a gospel tract. They're teaching you that God is holy, you're sinful, and you need a God-man mediator, and it's not you. 
It's somebody else who's going to come in the future. You need to go to him. And this is God's intent and history to move people forward to the Messiah, the Christ. And so the Old Testament moves from establishing the foundational instruction, God is holy, man is sinful and needs a God-man mediator, to the exaltation of Jesus Christ who is the God-man mediator and does what the law could not do, which you can read about in some of my favorite Bible verses in Romans 8, 3 to 4. Romans 8, 3 to 4 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As already mentioned, Exodus is clearly a theological cornerstone in scripture it's the cornerstone that teaches you this is what God's name is this is how he defines himself and he doesn't change Uh, his name won't ever be any different in the future it also is a theological cornerstone for teaching you how God's salvation works and within this book Not only is God's name launched in a way, but also the great nation of Israel, which he promised would come from Abraham. And Israel is launched as the name who makes the name known. This is God's creation purpose, by the way, to have a people who are fruitful and multiply for his glorious image being made throughout the entire earth. And all of it's framed and forwarded in God's covenant promises throughout Scripture. But the launch of Israel through the Exodus event also shows us that this merely horizontal Exodus isn't enough. Just moving from Egypt out to the wilderness doesn't make a people holy. It doesn't make a people love God just because they packed up their stuff and went from point A to point B. It's displaying the weakness of the old covenant that something greater needs to happen that there needs to be a vertical reality where these people's hearts are brought into being made right toward God in this exodus that we read about in exodus we see that Israel was taken out of Egypt but the problem is that Egypt still needed to be taken out of Israel Israel is a nation that needs God. In fact, the point of them walking around as a moving gospel tract with the tabernacle worship was to show everybody else that they're like everybody else, but they need what everybody else needs. So there's a tension here within the law. And the tension of the law is that it, it points to God's holiness, but at the same time it's pointing out man's sinfulness and the need for a God-man mediator to bring the two together but the law doesn't transform anybody it can't do that it wasn't made to do that but instead it shows that you need a substitute who can be all the things that you need to be and also transforms you the law instructs that this needs to be done by something else or more specific someone else 
think through some of the other tensions that we have throughout Exodus. I think you could lay out the tensions in the broad categories of sin and hope. You see a tension of sin and hope when Israel doesn't keep the instructions with the manna. They sin against God's instruction, but God still shows hope in that he provides bread from heaven. So there's this, it's like, well, how can you do that? Like, they don't deserve for you to give them bread from heaven. They deserve death. So there's this tension. You know, how can God be just and still be gracious and forgiving toward a people like this? Well, as you know, within their worship, the, the manna ends up being right next to the atonement seat or the mercy seat within the tabernacle, which was uh, combining these theological ideas that God is going to provide, but what he's going to provide is a substitute who can make you at one with God. He'll accomplish at one with God. But you also have tension within God's name as he revealed it, because he says that he'll forgive guilty sinners, but he'll by no means clear the guilty. Well, how, how can he do that? How, how can he forgive people who are guilty, but by no means clear the guilty? You see these tensions between grace and justice. And all of these tensions, as we've seen in the past in Exodus, are seen in the face of Moses when he came down from the, the mountain and his face was shining and God's glory was being reflected. But the aspect of God's glory that was being re reflected was death and condemnation which is why the people were afraid to come near Moses because they remembered last time he came down from the mountain, you know, what happened with, you know, our really cool golden calf that we built to honor Yahweh was a capital punishment of a lot of our family members. So seeing his face shining made them think of this mass grave site that was around them. It made them think of dead family and friends and thought, Maybe he's here to finish the job. Maybe we're about to go down with all of them. They didn't want to relive another mass death event, but they knew that they deserved it. So they said, Moses, put a veil on your face. <laughs> this is scary. Don't do this to us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I have you turn there. You can keep your place in Exodus. So I want you to look over it. 2 Corinthians 3, is it, it talks about this particular moment and this ministry. This is a chapter you want to be familiar with, and it helps you to understand what we're talking about here. I'm going to read verses 7 to 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. He's talking about the law here and the stone tablets. He says, but if the ministry of death in letters having been graved, engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face, which was being brought to an end, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be even more in glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. So you can see the tension here. There's this ministry of death and condemnation, which they could see on his face that reminded them of their sin and deserving death. 
But here's the other side of it. They could also see in his face, God can transform you. He can change you through a different ministry, though, the ministry of righteousness, uh, not just a glory of the expression of death and condemnation, but of life and justification, which is how 2 Corinthians 3 ends in verse 18. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Moses had to have a veil over his face because of God's glory, otherwise it would destroy them. But for us, it's not just one guy veiled, but it's all unveiled, beholding Christ together and seeing him in one another without the fear of judgment, because perfect love cast out fear. But how can God be both just in condemnation and just in forgiving sinners? Uh, how can these people deserve death, yet God renews and continues this covenant with them, which they broke? How can God promise to both destroy and deliver sinners? How can a holy God dwell with sinful man and give the hope of transforming all of this? Well, as you know, it points to a greater mediator than Moses, a prophet who is greater than Moses and can accomplish these things. It points forward to the wine and bread on a different table. It looks forward to the movement that we read there in 2 Corinthians 3 from life to death, from condemnation to righteousness, from veiled to unveiled, from glory to glory. The tensions of chapter 34, which we looked at a while back, sets up for chapters 35 to 40. The developing plot is meant to lead us to asking certain questions. Uh, how can the people come and build this tabernacle and worship God after, you know, they're the people who built this molten calf. How can they have the privilege of doing this? How does this square with God's character and covenants? And this developing plot is meant to give us a perspective on these things. It drives us to look to the future of God being who he will be. And who is it that he's going to be? He's going to be forgiving and just. But we want to know, well, how is he going to do that? How is this going to work out? And we want to know, how is he going to do what he said he was going to do? Which is to destroy, but also to dwell with. Coming into chapter 35, we read, Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, These are the things that Yahweh has commanded you to do. Six days' work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. We see here the privilege of participating in God's plan still remains for Israel, though they don't deserve it. The relationship is continuing, unthwarted, without derivation, without any change in intensity, with God's steadfast love on an unwavering pursuit. And God commands them what they're to do. Six days to work, on the seventh, rest. He tells them, rest or die. 
God is serious about Israel's role in making his name known to the nations. And God's plan is for his name to fruitfully multiply to the ends of the earth. And Israel is brought to participate in this high privilege of being a priesthood of global evangelist. And they're not brought into it through coercion, but God's compassion. We see this sort of element in verse 5, 35.5. It says, Take from among you a contribution to Yahweh, whoever is of a willing heart. It doesn't say, whoever was coerced because I just beat you so badly that you just thought you would do it, even though you didn't want to from the heart. And he says, whoever is of willing heart, let him bring as a contribution to Yahweh gold, silver, bronze, and a bunch of other things that are listed there. So you see this vertical component of people having a willing heart and coming to worship Yahweh. He's inviting the people who want to do this, who willfully participate, which is what God originally ordained for his creation, that man would worship him and work and enjoying him from a willing heart. In verses 4 through 9, if you scan through there, what you see is that these people contribute materials and manpower. They bring supplies and service. Then verses 10 through 19, we see it's these people that are wise of heart. You know, they're skilled within their control center to be able to do these things and to bring their best, their best things that they have and their best service and obedience to God. But the ordering of these things in verses 11 to 19 is a sort of double-edged sword. The ordering of these things, which we've considered the significance in the past, it, it matches exactly previous chapters about these sort of items of the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar of incense, altar of burnt offering, the court. But the physical action of what they're doing while, while whilst, I guess I'll use the word whilst, whilst they're building these things is important. So you think about that, they build the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, altar of incense, then they move out, there's the altar for the burnt offering, and they move out, and they are building the court, and they're going in the direction east, which somebody famous in their family went that direction from Eden a long time ago, and you might recall how the tabernacle is a model of Eden, you know, it's a this sort of flannel graph thing of what it looks like for man to dwell with God, but man went east, so why they're are building this model of Eden. They're building themselves out of it. They're building themselves outside of Eden. They're going east of Eden. They're not building it to be invited to come in. They're building it to go out and to be told to stay out. Well, why is this important, that they're building themselves out rather than in? Why does God want them to start from the inside and leave? Well, it's teaching them this tension that, well, the relationship is restored, but it's distant. You can come close, but not too close. But there's also this relationship of hope, but it's a distant hope. 
that man can dwell with God. God wants to dwell with us. We can dwell with him, but it's future. It's distant because there's this problem of sin. Sin hasn't been totally resolved, but when it is in the future, all of this will be fixed. So they build from the inside out. They're building to leave. They're building to not be able to come in. It says in a, one of these little kids' books that I have, because, because of sin, you can't come in, which is why you need the priest with holy garments. You read about them, 35, 19, they have these woven garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priest. Well, what's taught with them is the answer to the tension. This is why you need a priest. You need a priest who can reconcile God and man. You need one who, can, who has holy garments and can take those holy garments and then put them on you. You need a sacrifice which God provides and then clothes you of your shame so that you no longer have to do foolish things like trying to hide from them with some fig leaf underwear behind a bush. The only way that you can come in is by a priest mediator and the tensions within this particular administration are being laid out the tension that God has always wanted a relationship but sin separates it always separates but the glory of God changes everything and so the building process is instructional to the people because it reinforces the theology of the tabernacle they were learning the theology of how sin separates by how they built things, but they are also learning the theology that there's hope of God dwelling with man and transforming things as well. And who was involved in all of this? Now in verse 22, it says, you know, then all whose hearts were willing, both men and women came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So did every man who waved it as a wave offering of gold to Yahweh. Here they're using the gold in the right way, not to build a, a, a calf, but to build things that remind them of the reflection of the glory of God, which he desires in his creation. And everybody's involved, men and women, and it's all those whose hearts were willing, presumably, because we know what goes on when we keep reading the book later on. And both of them, they brought what they had to God. They, had, they brought materials and manpower, supplies and service, and they're bringing their best, and it's from their heart. And here we read in verses 30 to 31, then Moses said to the sons of Israel, See, Yahweh has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God. So where does a willing heart come from? Where do you get guys like the beloved contractor, Bezalel, here? Well, it's by the Spirit of God transforming him from within and giving him wisdom, discernment, knowledge and all of this in all craftsmanship to carry out that this worship and in verse 34 it says he also has put in his heart to teach 
because these things that he was building were meant to teach both he and Aholiev, who joined his uh, construction company and building the tabernacle here. And again in verse 35, it says, He has filled them with wisdom in their heart to do every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer and in blue and purple and in scarlet material and fine linen and of a weaver as those who do every work and make designs. When you think about this, why, why were they at work? Why were they at work doing these things? Well, because God was at work. You know, why were they working out building the tabernacle in fear and trembling? Because God was at work in them to be working these things out that he had put into their hearts. And they were bringing the best stuff with the best skill. And as you get into chapter 36, and you read 5 and 6, uh, I guess you could say this kind of got a little bit out of hand in them bringing the best stuff. It says they came, they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the service of the work which Yahweh commanded us to do. So Moses commanded and a proclamation was passed throughout the camp saying, let no man or woman any longer do the work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restrained from bringing any more. This is one of those things where you say, this is a good problem to have, right? And Moses has to issue this command to say, you know, no more stuff. But you see with the people, they're, they're wanting to give their best in this restored relationship. And as you look through that section 8 through 38 in this chapter, they do exactly what was said that they would do back in chapters 25 to 28, and that's important to recognize that they did this not only by divine empowerment, but they did everything exactly as God said that they were going to do it. But there's this apparent paradox is what we'll call it. You know, God did it, but they fulfilled it. It's like, well, why did it happen? Because of the spirit of God who was at work in them, but they did it. Their obedience was to the very word. If you compare what's in this section to chapters 25 to 28, you see word for word, they did what God said they would do. They, they gave him their absolute best obedience. But now think about that in the context. In giving God their best obedience, they were working their way further away from him. They weren't working their way into the tabernacle, but their best obedience was moving them outward, eastward. Their best will not be good enough. Uh, you can't earn this relationship with God. It's going to take something that's better than your best, something that's better than everybody's best, even collectively. Your best isn't enough to bring you into God's presence. You scan through chapter 37 this chat's a chapter of Bezalel making the ark and what you see through that is it just it shows how much they care the the best workers were involved in building this and and nothing but the best in verses 10 to 24 the last half of that chapter they give their best obedience with the table of presents the lampstand the altar of incense but again it's a progression of moving out of the tabernacle, which 
continues into chapter 38 where they keep building themselves out. They build the altar of burnt offering, the laver of bronze, all the way out to the courtyard. And as you get to the bronze laver that's filled with water in chapter 38, verse 8, we read, Moreover, he made the laver of bronze with its base of bronze from the mirrors of the serving women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Well, you might be thinking, you know, mirrors, big deal. You can get one for seven bucks at the Walmart. Well, they didn't have Walmart back then. If you wanted a, a mirror, you had to hammer out a piece of metal and polish it for a really long time before you had something decent so that when you looked in it, you didn't, you know, look, you know, peculiar. <laughs> it took a lot of work. This was a very costly item. You know, somebody would spend days in making it. And so what you see with these women giving up their mirrors, they're giving up something that was a, a cherished possession. It, it was the best thing that they had. And they wanted to bring the best supplies. And these women are also included in service outside the doorway of the tent of meeting as well. They wanted to give to God not only their best supplies, but their best service. Chapter 38, verses 21 to 31 that section there, it speaks of the things that are numbered for the tabernacle. And the significance of this numbering here is that it's going to begin keying us off to think of God numbering the days of creation and to connect our thinking back to then. It's to connect them back to things that happened in the past that are affecting things in the immediate but they're seeing in the immediate, you know, they're out. You know, they're outside of Eden. And they need a priest mediator to go in, but those details are going to come later. But the building shows hope for the future with the tension of being cast out. So as these things are numbered, you hear all of these echoes of Genesis chapter 2 when they did everything, and, you know, verse 21, it says, according to the command of Moses. And verse 22, that they made all that Yahweh had commanded Moses. You're hearing these words like did, completed, and all, which are words that you read in Genesis 2 at the end of the creation week when God did things, completed things, and it affected all. It's anticipating God's rest. So in a way, they're also, what they're doing is modeling going back to Eden. They're showing what it looks like to go back to that. This re restored relationship is going to come with a change in how we live and what it looks like to start moving back toward that rather than away from it. The language of all also shows that they're giving their best and they're willing to sacrifice to do this, to give the best of the best of obedience in connection with this concept of God's rest in Genesis chapter 2, which was his goal for all of creation, to work and to keep within God's rest. With your work being enjoying who God is and what he does in the world, to enjoy his attributes and activities forever. God is 
mercifully giving this relationship with him, what she's done for us sitting here hearing this message. If you have a relationship with God today, why do you have it? Uh, do, you, do you have it because you gave him the best and that's what brought you to him? Well, you, you have it because of mercy. Uh, even your best righteousness, the prophet Isaiah says, is but filthy rags before God. God has mercifully given us a relationship with him. We don't deserve it. But when we understand that his mercy is what motivates giving our best obedience, and you see it's a very different concept. We don't give our best obedience to get the relationship. We start with, we have the relationship by mercy, and that motivates us wanting to give him our absolute best. Chapter 39 gets into the priest and things that are done for them. And again, everything happens uh, exactly uh, according to what God said would, ha would happen. Uh, looking there in verse 1, uh, moreover, from the blue and purple and scarlet material, they made finely woven garments for ministering in the holy place, as well as the holy garments, which were for Aaron, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. And you keep reading that phrase throughout end of verse 5, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. End of verse 7, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Everything's happening word for word in this section. And I want to draw your attention here to verses 42 and 43. That's the end of the chapter. So 39, 42 to 43. And I want you to listen for Genesis 2 kind of language in it. 39, 42, and 43. Thus, according to all that Yahweh had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did in all their service. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it, just as Yahweh had commanded, so they had done. Then Moses blessed them. You hear an echo of God saw that it was good, but instead it's Moses saw all the work. You have an echo of, and it was finished, and that they had done it. And you have Moses blessed them, which reminds you of God's original creation blessing. And there's immense hope in this because they're seeing God is giving it all back. And Israel is saying with their actions here, he's given it back and we'll take it. And we're willing to give our best with sacrifice. Uh, the, the hope of this moment is immense with a picture of going back to Eden clothed with the right garments. But you remember the priests weren't to be the only priest in Israel with the right garments, but they were to be a picture and representation of a nation of priest who would be clothed with the right garments and make God's salvation known to the world. And that phrase that we've already echoed throughout there, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, is an echo of that creation language God said, and it was so. When you come to chapter 40 now, it begins, then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, 
On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting. Well, why, why was this on the first day of the first month? What day of creation does this remind you of? The first one. That's why it's the first on the first. And by setting up the tabernacle on this day, all of the theology of Genesis 2 and the anticipation of dwelling in God's rest is uh, being physically enacted. You could think of this section in Scripture as a state of the universe address. And the state of the universe address is this. Man is separated from God. Sin separates. It always separates. But the glory and presence of God will change everything. You'd like to have a president say something like that to us someday. You can pray for that. What was implicit becomes explicit in building the tabernacle. You know, you're, you're not in the Holy of Holies. You're in the outside courts. You're separated from the dwelling place. The tabernacle is a model of Eden, but Israel is a model of the whole world. They're cast out from God's dwelling place like everybody else. And they're a teaching tool to the nations that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 15 of chapter 40, you see that uh, what's needed to bring God and man together is a priest mediator. Again, a reminder, you're out, but you need a mediator to bring you in. And this is true not just for Israel, but the whole world. In verse 16, we read, Thus Moses did, according to all that Yahweh had commanded him, so he did. Now, what you need to understand here is that Moses is at his best. Uh, there were no shortcomings in him in the obedience that he gave in this moment. But even at his best, it wasn't enough. Uh, could the best works of Israel and Moses combined reconcile holy God and sinful man? Well, they needed something greater than this. They needed a transformation to return to being God's people and God's land under God's blessing but it's something that can't be done by the glory of man's works and actions. It could only be done by the glory of Yahweh himself. They're seeing the weakness of the law. The law can't do this. The law can't reconcile us to God. It's merely an instructor who points out our need for a savior, but it itself is not a savior. Man's best obedience can't do it. And Man's sinfulness points to the need for a savior, but it also points out to man that you can't be that savior. You can't be good enough even at your best. Only the creator, redeemer, Yahweh God, can do this by multiplying his glory to the end of the earth. So we see here that despite their immense sin against the great privilege they had been given, that God hasn't left them. God has not left Israel, and he's going to keep his covenant promises to his creation and to the Abrahamic family. God's going to keep all of his covenants. And the state of the universe address, as it continues on, I just want you to look at the last few verses of the book. This is Exodus 40, 34, or we're in chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, 
starting in verse 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud had dwelt on it, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Now throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. What happens here is the glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. It fills the dwelling place. And so we see God's, prom- or God's presence hasn't left, but he's kept his promise to make them a people and to dwell among them. But again, Moses at his best couldn't be in the tabernacle with God's glory in there at the same time. But there's hope for the whole world becoming the tabernacle. There's hope for the whole world becoming God's dwelling place. There's hope for a day when the old creation will be the former things because God will make a new creation. As God's plan goes on, it works from a movement of holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. So as you get into the book of Leviticus, the way that people are brought into the tabernacle is what I call the tabernacle takeover, is that the tabernacle starts coming out and pulling stuff into it and taking captives and slaves uh, into itself. Which what I'm referring to is the reality of Jesus being that tabernacle and saving people into him. But think about this tabernacle that they had that has been built. The glory of Yahweh is there, but Moses isn't in there. What's missing inside of the tabernacle that was in Eden? There's something that was in Eden, but it's not in the tabernacle. God's image. You think about that? Man was made in God's image. But where's man at? He's not in Eden. He's outside of Eden. So it leaves this tension. It's like, well, man is supposed to be a representative of God. He's to reflect his character and to live under his rule, which is why Israel wasn't to make any images. Why was Israel not to make any images? God has already made his image bearers to explain to the world, I rule there and there and there. How do you know? God has his image there. That's how we know that he's in charge of this place right here. So you see this tension again that sin separates. It always separates. God's image bearers should be in and not out. And Moses couldn't enter even at his best because the cloud was on it and the glory of Yahweh had filled the tabernacle. And Moses is a model of the mediator and that he prays for a people, he instructs the people, but he's not the mediator a lesson he had already been taught, and that he'll teach others in Deuteronomy 18.15 when he says, Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. You shall listen to him. Something greater is needed 
for all of these things which are hoped for to be actualized. And so the book of Exodus ends with this tension of sin and grace, a tension of man is separated from God, but God will dwell with them and will transform things. And it leaves you as a reader wondering, well, how can God forgive yet by no means leave the guilty unpunished? It ends with you wondering, how can God be just and justly forgive guilty sinners? How can God be right and make sinful man right with him? How can a priest mediator reconcile holy God and sinful man? Well, at this point, we know this is his plan. We know that he can do it and that he will do it. But the question is, how? Which picks up in the next book in the Bible on the word then. Then you have to read what happens after the then. I'm not going to try to preach the whole book of Leviticus right now. <laughs> I'm just going to try to finish Exodus today here. But the point, the big overarching point is that it's the glory of God that, that transforms everything ultimately by God being who he will be. There's going to be a resolution in the future. There's going to be a greater exodus than the one that had happened in the past that's going to answer the question how will God resolve sin and justice how will God resolve grace and judgment how will he resolve this need for a God man mediator in one person this sets up for Yahweh to continue to speak and reveal his name to continue to reveal his character and his will it's a plot that sets us up to gain more perspective as we learn how his salvation will work and more about his priest and his atonement in the book of Leviticus. Israel's worship is a gospel tract. It's a gospel tract that teaches us God is holy, man is sinful and needs a God-man mediator and you need to go to him. The law itself is just instruction and instructs through these models that were built and the nature of the law is taught within this administration of Moses and that the nature of it is well what the word law means that's it means instruction uh, it's an instructor but as you know you know model cars can't get you to the grocery store you need a real car right now they only have a model of the real thing but they need the real thing to come so that they can be brought into God's rest. So the tabernacle is a picture of dwelling with holy God. Israel is a model of sinful man separated from God and the priesthood and their practice was a model of the need for a God-man mediator. This is something that Israel was to understand, but even the, the nations watching them walk around in circles in the wilderness could understand this because they had similar worship practices but this God was different he was coming near to the people which also made him really scared because they thought if he's coming near to them after he gets to them he's going to come after us the gospel I know we often talk about how it's a message and when we try to conceive of it as a gospel tract we think of particular teachings but we don't want to overlook that the gospel is God himself. Uh, 
Uh, he is the good news. And the good news is he's not a God who is distant, who's only known by a title, but he's a God who has come near to us to tabernacle among us, to explain himself by making himself known personally by name, specifically the name Yahshua, Jesus. As we heard in our scripture reading this morning from John 1, 14 to 18, which is where we'll close here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the word tabernacle there. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For all of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Well, at this point, we're going to share in communion together. And as the deacons, the servers come forward to serve that, let's pray together. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would so condescend to come into this world of sinners to be our Savior, to not be a distant God, but to be a near one. Thank you that we can know you by name and that you have made your name of grace and truth known to us. We celebrate this reconciled relationship with you and we celebrate your second coming, that you will come and bring about the completeness of salvation and deliverance of the entire universe, of all creation. Pray that you would help us in thinking upon these things as we partake of the bread and the cup together.